You are listening to Secret Handshake, the podcast covering the movies that help you identify your friends and maybe make a few more along the way. Coming up, the final installment in our Farewell to Summer miniseries covering the Meatballs movies and various summer camp cinematic shenanigans featuring Jet Skis, Midlife Crises, Corey Feldman, Bloody Murder, Moonwalking, Brestices, Jack Nance, Secret Romance, and Bill Paxton's Boner. Martin? Yes. Let's take it to the ring! of Secret Handshake. I'm your host, Jacob Knight. Joining me as always is Martin Carlson. Martin, you don't have COVID anymore. I do not. It's good to be back together in person. I know, and we're actually finishing up you know, our series on summer camp movies, and I'm kind of sad about this because I've had a lot of fun and, frankly, have been really proud of our selections, like it was the one thing on this last go round that I was like, man, we really stretched ourselves to like try and cover as many different iterations of the summer camp film as we possibly could. Because with this one, we have Meatballs 4, which is our final installment in the Meatball series. And then we have Indian Summer, which is probably the most dramatic movie that we're getting yes. outside of like little darlings is probably the, the the one that would stack up the most in terms of just like the tone of what it's going for but indian summer is very much a a 90s adult melodrama you know that's very specific to like the era that a it mom was and made dad in. movie oh yeah. it's 100 and it's 100 a movie that time forgot yeah like it's and it's the type of movie frankly that they don't really make anymore like if you made indian summer these days it would go to netflix like directly or you do a tv show like this is us exactly i think there are shows that are completely doing that vibe that yeah that dramedy and you're probably right because like this would be like a 10 episode season on Netflix of just hanging out with these insufferable yuppies while they're at summer camp together. But we'll get to that in a minute. And then for our final pick, we had Bloody Murder to the 2000 Friday the 13th Uber knockoff. Woof. Um, because there's a sequel too. I'd never seen this movie and there's Bloody Murder 2 yep. that came out like three years later, I want to say. Yeah, it was 03, I think. But these are also very era specific in that they are like the late 90s, early 2000s blockbuster era of like DTV, like shelf stuffers. Like this is like a, a, a movie... I guess in the case of Bloody Murder, murder a series sort of of movies that were released by like an artisan em- entertainment or a Lionsgate or yeah. something. And they were just like, they have a specific aesthetic, they have a budget level. And it was just literally, what can we put on the DVD cover that will guarantee that like the four copies that Blockbuster has in stock are consistently rented out and just... M- generates revenue for us on the home video line. Well, I mean, 
to go off that point, that's why we watched it. I had never seen this. I remembered seeing it at Family Video in Franklin, Indiana on the shelf and it releases because I would always just keep an eye out for the new horror stuff. And I looked at the back and said, oh, this looks too cheap. I'm not going to watch this. This is, you know, 2000. And low it was. And low it was. And it was it was funny because we were trying to think of one more camp slasher. And we, okay, we've already done a whole series, a whole episode on Friday the 13th. We kind of purposely stayed away from Sleepaway Camp because that's kind of been done to death on podcasts. Yeah. We, we both like that series, but like, what else is there to say? I think is the point you made to me. I agree. This is one I don't think it's like talked about a whole lot. Um, and I'm actually really glad we added it. There's plenty to say about this movie. And honestly, I'm probably going to watch the sequel. I like I'm too. intrigued enough by how shitty Bloody Murder was that I was like, well, how the fuck did they even make two? And I, But the other thing too is that it's like, the sequel's very existence proves that like they moved enough copies at these video stores to justify making another, I don't know, hundred thousand dollar feature or whatever the fuck bloody murder was made for. It couldn't have been more than like a ham sandwich and a bag of peanuts, (laughs) but it's like, again, it's indicative of a particular era of like, as long as you delivered a product that could be put on a video store shelf and that they could move enough copies, you could possibly make another movie. And like nowadays that doesn't really exist. Well, and it, it fits in then perfectly with like what we talking about with, with this, this line of uh, films for this, our four part uh, mini series here for horror films for uh, ripoffs of of teen sex comedies that are just a cover with a girl running, you know, I think like Screwballs has the one of a girl with her bathing suit being pulled off. These images, they're just like, okay, what you see is what you get. It's very much the Roger Corman mentality of like the poster comes first, you know, and I agree that, that those times are behind us. Um, but most of the films we've talked about have all been ripoffs except for the original meatballs. And we didn't talk on Friday the 13th, but like everything else has been kind of doing that in yeah, one way or in another. The vein. Yeah, exactly. It, like Madman is 100% doing the, the campfire legend, uh, the burning, even though like we said, there's some production timeline stuff yeah. that even that feels like it's at least in the vein of like Friday the 13th cheerleader camp i don't know what's happening there like there was too much cocaine involved for us to even classify that one but yeah like bloody murder almost feels like a bunch of slasher fans getting together and shooting something in the woods that's like supposed to almost it's almost like fan film film like levelish Yes. Especially in like production values and everything to where it's almost like, well, what if we just made our own Jason movies? It reminded me of like at the draft house, they used to do this kind of often to where like they would do the the mixtape of Friday the 13th fan films. And like, that's what this kind of feels like almost just stretched out to 90 minutes. It feels like something I would have made like right after college. Right. Even with a film degree, I didn't know what I was fucking doing. This is what I would have made with friends. If we said, Hey, we got to camp for a week. Let's get our friends together. Like we'll figure out the makeup when we get to it. Um, 
who's our killer? Uh, this guy. I don't want to. We'll get into the name more. Guy in a hockey mask. Yeah. That's oh. literally what it boils down to. It's like, who cares? Give him a hockey mask. Yeah. And it's, I remember uh, back to family video, they would have, I, I realized, this guy sounds super pretentious, but how mockbusters and the like are, are, are actually fooling a lot of people. Like you and I see trans transformers or Atlantic rim or I am Omega. And we're like versed enough as a lot of people are. Hey, that's not, I am legend. That's not transformers. They would have to put tags on the front of these movies to be like, this is not, they had a whole cartoon movie. It's like, this is not the new 2003 Hulk. Like a week after it came out in theaters. And it's like, I'm sounding super, again, pretentious, but like, that's a thing that they had to do in my hometown. I'm like, I think this is that kind of thing too. If someone walks by, like, oh, is that one of them new Jason movies? Like, for real, you know? And that's how it made the money. That's all it took. Yeah, because the whole cover of the Bloody Murder movies are just a dude in a hockey mask. Again, they just needed the iconography to sell tapes. Yep. And that's it. But speaking of iconography, do you want to get to Corey Feldman and Meatballs 4? Oh, please. Yes. Let's do it. King of the mountain, you thought you were the top of the heap. You like taking what other guys try to keep. Here's a fact, it better warn you. Ticket to California, California, California. So look who's laughing now. You find out somehow. Baby's got a black book. Your baby's got a black book. Say baby's got a black book. She's got a black book. 1992's Meatballs 4. Now, Martin, on our last episode, you went out of your way to say that you prefer this one to Meatballs 3. Yes. Why? Um, I think partly it's just a comp- more competently made. It looks better. I mean, it's probably, again, unfair to 3 that I saw a shitty, you know, rip of a VHS on YouTube. Um, even that being said, this one looks a little more polished. Um, it on It has more of a narrative thrust than some of the, like, than 2 and 3 does. Like, they set up very early on okay, we're going to have a competition. There is this, you know, again, the, the very generic evil camp across the lake that wants to take over our camp. We're low on money. Um, and it, even though I don't think it's like any funnier than Meatballs 3, it at least I feel like I'm being taken along in some kind of narrative. Yeah, it replaces weirdness with competency. Yes. To where Meatballs 2 and 3 were both incredibly strange and almost... They use the summer camp format and like kind of prove how malleable it is to where like it's just Play-Doh in the filmmaker's hands and they can kind of do whatever they want with it for better and honestly for worse in most cases, at least in those two films. Um, But yeah, I agree with you. Meatballs 4 feels more like a movie itself. And it also does something different that the first two sequels do not do to where the first two sequels are basically about the losers who are hanging out in camp. Meatballs 2 being a bunch about, you know, little dorks who want to lose their their virginity. And then Meatballs 3 being about Patrick Dempsey's uh, impotent dipshit 
you know, being guided by, oh, it's true, um, being guided by the uh, ghost of a dead porn star to, again, get laid. Here, it returns it to the original formula of the first meatballs about being a the cool counselor, who's Corey Feldman instead of Bill Murray, and then how he takes a, another dork kind of under his wing. Here is a 40-year-old fat kid who is inexplicably at camp um, and who isn't likable in the least. That's kind of, that was my main problem with this film is that Rudy is like nowhere to be found, you know? Right. Like this guy is just like, almost if like you took like Flounder from Animal House and tried to make him like, Tripper's protege. It's just, it doesn't work at all for me. Yeah. He's got really Kevin James energy going on in this. And I mean that in the worst way possible. Um, it's see, I was going more with Corky, but yeah, sure. <laughs> no, you're because like we talked about this a couple weeks ago and we've mentioned it often with the original meatballs. There's a, just so much sweetness in that movie. It's like, you know, surrounding the comedy or within the comedy is, this strong relationship between between Tripper and Rudy that really anchors the movie about without getting too heavy handed. Like here's this guy kind of becoming a father figure. Like at once he's like balancing out being the cool guy at camp, but realizing he kind of wants something more out of life than just like getting girls and like being the jokester. It's like underneath it, it's like, no, I want to like help a kid along the way. And this one paint by numbers, put, you know, adds that in that guy was, this guy was older than Corey Feldman too. Like he's, he's talking, at least 43. Well, I think he was 28, but he does like, he looks really old. Like, yeah. and he's, and he's bigger and he's like, my parents, I've never been out of the house before. Basically I never like been away from home. And I'm like, how old are you? And everyone, I mean like, again, is it even worth like getting into the horror films and these comedies or slashers have like 28 year olds playing teens, but this one's pretty egregious about it. And Feldman, Oh. Feldman, I think, is done no favors by the script. But if you're going to basically have him play Tripper, um, oh, my God, he just comes up, no surprise, so short of Murray. It's like everything feels, you can see it on the page. You can see them like, this is he's extreme. He's cool. You can see Feldman showing up the day before shooting, high on fucking meth, his goddamn tooth falls out in the final scene while he's talking, and they left it in the movie. You can't make this shit up. He looks so rough. It's his voice. That's oh, the thing to oh, me yeah. that you can tell the most like how hard he's been living because he has that... like. Now, for those who at home listening to this who may not know, I work in bars and spend a lot of time in them, and Corey Feldman is like the dude who shows up basically every day for like his couple shots of whiskey and his, his Budweiser or whatever, but he has, he might be 32, but he has the voice of a 62 year old, like lifetime smoker. Like it's just, it's nothing but like a cratered out larynx trying to emit words. And all you're getting is like scratches coming out of him. Like it's, he sounds like Tom Waits. He, Always had a scratchy voice, to be fair. I mean, like, even back to Stand By Me, he had that part. But, like, you're right. I mean, this is, like... He sounds horrible. He, yeah, this, it, this, is, this sounds unhealthy. Because um, you think about, like, The Burbs, one of my favorite movies, and one of my favorite Corey Feldman performances. He has, like, a youthful 
exuberance still. That was 89. And this is 92. And like you could, he looks like he's aged 10 years. Yeah. At least between them. He's got like a stubble. But the movie, again, does him no favors by giving him just some really bad just dad joke after dad joke. And, and, Again, paint by numbers, uh, teen sex comedy shit. And it feels, the whole movie feels like it's late to the party. But I think it's kind of the point of this episode is we're going to talk about these films that are much, are, are later um, in the these cycles for horror films, but also for comedies. It's like, dude, the shit's been done and better 15 fucking years ago, man. Yeah. Like, you're late. And this is all you got. You got nothing else to add. Here we go. Now, to be fair, it does give Feldman two completely bonkers entrances. When he enters the movie, he parachutes in. With a boombox around his neck. With a boombox around his neck, like fucking white flavor flame. He's extreme. He's just extreme, you know? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) He's Bodhi. But if Bodhi was like a summer camp counselor instead of a bank robber. And then in... Perhaps the most inexplicable scene in the entire film, he comes into like, is it a dance dance. hall? And he does a full on dressed as Michael Jackson moonwalking routine that goes on. Like it might've only gone on for 40 seconds, but in my head it was like four years. I'm like, what the fuck is this movie doing? And as you pointed out, this might've been, not too long after he was staying at Michael Jackson's actual Neverland ranch and getting diddled. Well, cause I think, um, first off, yes. Um, <laughs> second, second, um, he did dream a little dream with Meredith Salinger mm. and, and the other, and Corey Haim. And he has a whole dance number in that one too, where he's got the full on like that arrow that the le- that, not the leather, but it was like the the captain's jacket that yeah. um, that Michael Jackson wear. He's wearing that. He's got his hair Michael Jackson like style, and he dances for Meredith Salinger for an extended period of time, and it's uncomfortable. To I, be fair, it, I would dance for Meredith Salinger. I would do for anything yeah. for her exactly, um, and. Now she's married to Patton Oswalt. She did. Mm-hmm. Um, Good for him. Yeah. Hell yeah. Good for both Beat of them. it up, sir. <laughs> yeah. She's just gorgeous. Um, uh, or my favorite scene of her or anything is Lake Placid, where Oliver Platt's, you have t- such big, wonderful boobs. <laughs> um, she looks really <laughs> smart. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but yeah, there was an era where he was like, like Macaulay Culkin, one of like Jackson's buddies. Yeah, and who they and they air both, quotes air quotes. Yeah, you, obviously this we're on we're on podcast here. Um, but these two guys were ardent. You know, um, they they objected to years later too. Of oh, nothing ever happened, and I actually believe that maybe nothing did because like they were too popular. Mm. You know what I mean? It was I like, thought it, Feldman did say something happened. Everybody else, he had the whole that documentary he did about. What happened to Horton? That's what I thought. But, yeah. but not Michael. He said Michael Jackson's the one guy who didn't. Mm. Um, again, we don't do the whole podcast about this, but Corey was in a rough state. We'll just say this. This is like a, a scene. Like it's really, I think you said unsettling was the word. It's like, upsetting. It, it's really. You feel kind of you feel bad for the guy. You feel bad for the actor. It's so poorly shot, and it's such. It feels so cloying from the filmmakers to be like, "This is cool, right?" And. Yeah. It's not. It's the whole like Steve Buscemi, how do you do fellow kids meme just in summer camp cinema form. That's it. Um, but 
Also, this is a film uh, that we've talked about with the others that was not a Meatballs movie. It was called Happy Campers, and they got the rights. So, you know, we kind of knew that going in, but we've learned more and more that that's all this series is, is just one great movie and three independent comedies they got enough money together to buy the, the names. Well, the second one's TriStar. Oh, you're right. So the second one's still, but yet three and four are 100% like no budget, like titty comedies, more or less. Because there's a lot of titties in Meatballs 4, even more than three, which is crazy seeing that it features the ghost of a dead porn star that this would actually out-titty that movie. But, and there's some good-ass titties in this movie. Uh, the best. This is, like, Boner Jam's fucking, like, 92 Skinamax. Yeah. Because uh, the girl who plays Hillary, she was a playmate. I think mm. A couple other girls in the film are also... I'm sure she was. Playmates. And it knows... This film knows what it is. Um, and yeah. It, I think we're five minutes into the movie. We're at full-on shower scene. And, like, the guys sneak over... Yeah, because they they lure Flounder in. What's Flounder's actual name? Eugene Mermanstock or something? Oh no, it's he has a weird name. Um, yeah, his name is Victor Victor Thigpen. They mostly call him Thigpen. That's it. Yeah. I knew it wasn't Eugene Mermanstock. <laughs> but he's I mean he's terrible. That that character is really every time he's on screen, it's just nails on a chalkboard. Horrible. But they lure him in to like watch the girls in the shower. That's when we first see it. And to your point, it's like five minutes into the movie. Also to your point uh, that you made a couple episodes ago, this is closer to something like Ski School or Hot Dog the movie because it is all water skiers or jet skis. And frankly, it's one of the saving graces of this movie. There's two saving graces to Meatballs 4. One is Jack Nance as the head of the camp. And he's really... I don't know if he's having fun because it seems like he's questioning all of his life decisions like all at once, like on screen while they're filming. But he's at least there and like doing kind of like a Brian Doyle Murray type thing as mm-hmm. the, the head of the camp. And then two, the the stunt work for all the jet ski stuff yes. and, and water ski shit is actually kind of good. So like that part I'm into, but... Outside of that, I don't really have a whole lot of collected thoughts about Meatballs 4. This was a movie that just kind of washed over me in a gray wave. I'll just say that I really enjoy this movie. I mean, out of I, this is my third time seeing this movie, and I'll, I'll watch it again. Sure. Um, like, it is a completely Saturday, 3 p.m. You just got back from fucking brunch with your friends, and you're like, I don't want to pay attention to shit. I don't want to go to sleep and take a nap. What can I put on? This is that movie. Well, it's kind of like the movie we watched last night together. I invited you over so I could test out some cocktails and delicious. We threw on uh, pinball summer, a movie I've inexplicably seen three times now, twice in the movie theaters on 35 millimeter. Don't know why I keep coming back to this film throughout my life, but I, I do. But last night was the most enjoyable kind of time I had with it because we did exactly what you just described with Meatballs 4 is that we just threw it on. We had some drinks. We more or less like talked over it and kind of commented on the movie as it was playing. Like it's fucking pinball summer, y'all. We don't have to like treat it like it's Tolstoy or anything. But like, 
by the end, we were like, oh, cool. We saw pinballs. And we pinball summer. Pretty good. When a point that we were making last night off of that, too, was these were films that were meant to be seen like that, you know, at, right. at drive-ins, that you could not pay attention for 30 minutes and you're still fine. Yeah. Like you're still, or same, and I same, I think with, with a movie like Meatballs 4, that's the thing you, you convince your older brother to rent for you and your friends on a fucking, like, to y'all to watch. Right. And then you're not paying attention to the story. Like it's, it's giving you what it signed up for and it does. And it is, it is like, it's, it looks like a fucking like Lisa Frank painting. Yeah. It's just like super vibrant nineties pastels and, or like neon colors. Um, but yeah, it's just, I mean, similar to some slashers that I like, I kind of like just hanging out in this space and this is one of those movies. Yeah. And as long as you catch the floozy from the flies and naked boobies, you got all you need out of pinball summer. You know it. You want to get to bloody murder? Sure. All right. Bloody Murder. Martin, is this the worst movie we've ever covered on this podcast? Close. Um, what was the Albert Pune with the two aliens? Um, Deceit? Deceit. That's the worst, I think, of... This is probably the most incompetent. It was close on incompetence, but like that one put... That one was so cloying and just like hitting me over the head with like, we're never going to leave this room. The acting's terrible. This at least is like moves around a little bit as generic and is, and it just shitty. It looks so fucking ugly. It's the ugliest movie. It's a, it's the ugliest definitely out of the group. Well, as I kind of mentioned before, it is of that late nineties, early two thousands DTV era. And like the aesthetic of it, like hit me. Like, just like a waft of really bad weed as soon as the movie started because it's that flat, kind of almost like lit only by key lights. Yep. Borderline digital cinema for like cinematography. It's not digital, but it might as well be with how like lacking depth it has and like how it feels completely incompetent and after like kind of post Kevin Smith, post like. That whole 90s boom of all you need is a camera and a willing crew to go out into the woods and shoot something. And now you have a movie. And it's like, yes, that's great. But you should also have talent, too. Like, this feels like that. It's just 
a DIY, low-budget, knockoff Friday the 13th that names its killer who wears a hockey mask and, like, a bright blue, like, jumpsuit, like, Myers jumpsuit type thing. Blue. Blue. Like Robin's egg blue. Yeah, like, like, how did you think you were hiding in the wood? Like, how did nobody see you coming every time you're like, hey, I see you, man. Oh, you, wore, you wore the blue jumpsuit again. You're not going to, you know, sneak up at me with that chainsaw this time. But they name him fucking Trevor Morehouse. The legend of Trevor Morehouse. Trevor Morehouse sounds like the villain in a Rodney Dangerfield frat movie. Not a, a fucking slasher. Like, I guess Jason Voorhees kind of has that energy to it, too. But, like, you can totally see what they're even going for with the name. And it's like... Ooh, so close yet so far away. Well, this is one of those movies like the other two this week where you and I were like completely aligned. Like we were texting back and forth yeah. and like making like, oh, I already wrote that down. Like we were noting the same shit, the same thing I wrote. This guy's like a fraternity president at Cornell. Yeah. You know, oh, I'm Trevor Morehouse, you know. Hi, I'm Trevor Morehouse. I'm actually studying business and political science and chainsaw murder. <laughs> But it looks like an episode of Goosebumps or an episode. Jesus, of, you're you're slandering Goosebumps. Oh, that's right true. Now. Goosebumps are like, are you afraid of the dark? Like, the, which, which are also yeah. like very flat, kind of looking shit. Those are all, that's all Canadian. But this was shot in California in um, Big Bear, right? And yeah, I think in Big Bear, the director had done a bunch of other like um, a lot of softcore, of course. Portillo, yes. Joey Portillo, or Ralph Ralph, Ralph Portillo. Portillo. He did another. Horror Not to be film. confused with the great Portillo's sandwich chain in Chicago. You gotta dip that Italian beef, bro. Mm. Uh, I had one last time I was there. Changed my fucking life. Amazing. That was, and the and the that chocolate cake shake. Yeah, I mean, you put some of that hot jardinera on that motherfucker. Mm. Mm, that's good eating. Anyway, back to bloody murder. <laughs> I haven't had dinner yet, um, <laughs> but. I started watching this movie, and it, this was my idea to add to the the list. And I was gonna text you like, "Dude, I'm so." What I did, like, I'm sorry. <laughs> you literally apologized. <laughs> I was at work serving drinks, and I just got a text that said, "Bloody murder." I'm sorry, <laughs> but it but it comes around and like it had like you kind of getting at it does have a do it yourself kind of charm. Of it's if, watchable. If that's you, the thing about all these movies that's crazy is that they're all for incompetent and bland and boring as they can get. They were weirdly watchable. I agree. I mean, even at their worst, you know, where you're like, oh my God. I, I think we talked about Meatballs 2 like a couple episodes ago. That was pretty difficult because um, it's so random and so like aimless. Um, it took me three viewings to get through it in 20 minute increments. Yeah. And that's, that's very fair. This one, I mean, I watched in one sitting. It's super fucking short. Um, it's also more of a mystery um, where, uh, you, people are being, people just are disappearing, um, in a sleepaway camp style, right? Where, and there's mis there's misunderstandings about like, oh, like, you know, this guy was sleeping with this guy's girl and then they caught him and he like ran away. Um, but it, it just, the horror of course does not land, at well, all. that's where the that's where the budget really reveals itself. Is the oh, kills man. are so like oh, we got a little bit of ketchup and like this you know three pronged hacksaw or whatever. Just throw some ketchup on his back. Cool. Next scene. I mean, it's that. 
It's, yeah. it's that level of filmmaking. And I, you know, I have some issues we'll get to with Indian summer, but it's kind of like comparing Donald Trump to Joe Biden or like when, uh, when they, when they do go on, it's like when you, you know, do the debates and you're asking Trump, like, you know, did you tie your shoes today? And yet go to Biden and you're like, Oh, can we talk about, you know, complex foreign diplomacy? You know, it's like holding these films to different standards. Cause like I've been problems with Indian summer again, but it's a competent, Movie, yeah, it can at least form <laughs> complete sentences. Yeah, or bloody murder might not speak English. Yeah, um, but it's also funny that you and I saw you and I noted a lot of again similar things in this movie. There's some real idiosyncrasies. Some, to it. It, and that's why again I love slashers to the to the worst bottom of the barrel. They can't help but have personality. Sure, they, they just can't help because you either if you go by the numbers. You're just getting these moments that shine through. You can't help but be interesting. And this movie is definitely that. I mean, the line that you and I both wrote down is a girl is smoking weed. She goes, it's a habit I picked up when I was living in Guam. And I wrote, what? Yeah. <laughs> I wrote like, with a lot I'm of sorry. A's. What did you say? Well, and then there's a, and then the next scene, actually the same scene, um, she looks down and she's like, I think like um, henna tattoos on her toes. Oh yeah, it has that great line where the girl goes, "Your toes are so pretty." Your toes are pretty. And you're like, "What?" Um, Who and starts it, a conversation that way? Well, and it's you know, it's also another film that's late to the fucking party. Yeah, I mean, because not only is it doing Friday Thirteenth decades later, um, it's also trying to do Scream like five years later, and. Because it, it has a Randy. It has surrogate. a Randy who does not start that way. In the middle of the movie, out of nowhere, he becomes Randy. And they, they try to make it. I think in the. Because it, it does fit the whole Friday the 13th, like mold plot wise. It's a bunch of kids who are going to this camp to bench, uh, essentially like reopen it. Yes. And there's one head counselor. So like you see the template right away. But on the drive, he, I, I can't remember what the comment that he makes, but he does make one comment to mm. where I, even in my head, I went, oh, he's supposed to be like the Randy, I guess. That's fair. You're right. But I, he I've, does become more, you're, you're right too, because like it only hints at it. And then he, ex, he kind of loses all personality or, or frankly just becomes a little perv because he's just kind of perving on the one girl the whole time. But then he does full on transform into Randy after like the first murder because he's being interrogated by a cop and he like starts going into like the rules of slashers and like how they were what like because the one character disappears while they were watching slumber camp massacre 14 yeah i think is what he says and he's, and he's like it was 97 minutes quite long for a film of yeah. this type well i thought so, it was a hundred i thought it was an hour and 43 minutes right. or something yeah. quite long for a, a an entry into the slasher genre and you're like stop it right now stop it that's what i say <laughs> <laughs> that's my line but, Similar to Meatballs 4, you see these moments of them trying to be witty, and you're like, just shut the fuck up. Like, it's, it's weird because, like, in that scene, it's both the one of the most groanable moments and also one of the most hilarious in that, like, when he Columbo's that fucking murder, because he straight up goes from Randy to Columbo, and then he does an entire timeline and, like, lays it out... Well, you know, the hour, the movie was an hour and 43 minutes so that he would have had enough time to slip out, kill this girl, 
hide her body and come back. And he goes like beat for beat for beat and lays it out and then ends with, but that's just my assumption or something like that. And you're just like, what the fuck? Who the fuck is this kid? Like, yes. how did he go from Randy from Scream to, to, to Detective Columbo? Like, that's, you're out of your mind, sir. But this is a movie as well that like I, I will maybe watch again because there's shit like this. Martin, come on. There's shit like this that, again, in the background that I think is so bad it's good. Sure. Territory. Um, I, again, like I will watch part two. Yeah, I was going to say I can't rip on you too much because I'm definitely watching the sequel. I just want to see what they do with it. I already watched the trailer, so. Oh, did you? Is there any kind of aliens to it, or is it just kind of like, do they up the game at all, or does it just look like a second slasher? It's, I mean, but I was thinking it was going to be, like, not connected, but just some other random fucking slasher. It was. It is a direct sequel of that character Jason who goes missing at the end of the movie. Right. It's, it's him, I think, becoming the killer in two. And they go. Oh, so it's to doing like a Friday Five type. Yeah, thing? like switching it out. Um, and I think I don't think it's the same filmmaker, but no, it is. It's still Ralphie. Oh, is it old Ralphie Portillo? There's. This is one of those movies as well. What do you think Ralph does now? I don't. He still directs shit. I think. No, Ralph works at like. A 7-Eleven, like, making hot dogs. I was a big movie director. I was once a big movie director. I made the Bloody Murder series. They, they put my name up on the marquee. It was Ralph Portillo. They even named a sandwich after me. <laughs> He's telling these, these fish tales. Yeah. Um, but uh, the, the, thing I, the thing that doesn't make me want to watch this again is just the really inane conversations like there are these, there's this one conversation. I literally for four minutes discuss boots. They're oh, like, that's they're, right. They're, they're, they're like, Hey, have you seen Tim? Yeah, I saw Tim. He's looking for his boots. Have you seen his boots? What kind are they? I don't know. Have you seen him around? I'm like, I mean, obviously filling for time. Yeah. But we got to stretch this to a feature. Yeah. We, we gave shit to Sean Cunningham for fucking, you know, Alice making coffee for seven minutes. I'll take that any day over these fucking boots conversations, you know? Well, I, I'm thinking about, too, how, like, these movies were never stopped being made, like, since that kind of 2000s DTV boom, because we have a new series, frankly, coming, you know, one's hitting Fantastic Fest in a couple weeks that will be there, are the Terrifier movies, is yeah. that there's always these low-budget, straight-to, in this case, streaming, pretty much, uh, kind of attempts at creating a new slasher icon. Yep. Chrome Skull was another Chrome one. Chrome Skull Laid was rest, another yeah. one. Exactly. Oh, God, that movie's rough. It's not good. But Terrifier, I've finally been talked into trying these movies out by a friend of ours. And, like, they told me, essentially, they're like, you know all these other movies that you watch, and especially from, like, the early 2000s, he's like, this is kind of, like, the good version of that. So that's the reason I wanted to bring them up in... in uh, conversation with bloody murder is that it feels like terrifier is almost like the next evolution of that DTV slasher to where like that director kind of, cause it's the same director who made like a terrifier short film. Well, there's and then art, all, the clown like showed up in all house. Yeah. There's like four different iterations now at this point after terrifier two comes out, which terrifier two apparently is 140 minutes long. That's too much art. The clown, sir. I'm sorry. I haven't seen it yet. You cannot justify that length to me. I will still sit through your movie eventually though. As a, a slasher fan, I am a big asshole with new slashers that aren't 
that are independent because right. a lot of them are these festival dudes who are like, they're just fans first. They're not filmmakers. And they're all basically just doing fan films. Like, Oh, I created this guy. His name, like again, like art, blah, blah, blah. And he shout got, out Joe Bag- he, Bagos. Yeah. My favorite filmmaker. And th- those kind of guys, right. Yeah. Where it's like, just trash. It's just complete shit. And, and not in a fun, shitty way. I remember, um, being at Texas Frightmare one year and Ryan, uh, Ryan Turek from, from Blumhouse was there doing a Q and a, and people were basically saying, Hey, what's next? Like, what do mm-hmm. you think's the next horror thing? He goes, whoever can crack the slasher, the way that scream cracked it in the nineties can crack it again for a new generation. It's not scream. That's the thing. And I agree, I, but it hasn't been done. I think it's a really, really difficult because it's so simple, but for, but like you need to do more than just a guy in a mask. There's got to be some way to like give credit to Scream and understand that we live in a post, a, a, a post kind of like blind uh, kind of era. We all know the machinations of a horror story, but to, how to do that in, in this environment. I think X came close, but it was too arty for a lot of people. I think so. Yeah. But I, I still don't. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a, it's a good, and like we've talked before about Ty West, he just kind of did the thing. Yeah. Like he just did a really good slasher. I mean, I know it's not a full on slasher, but a film like Hills Have Eyes, the remake is another one where it's like, Aj has a guy who's just like, I'm just going to do the thing. Yeah. And I do it really fucking well. I'm going to make my movie, but it's going to adhere to at least the, the beats or the, 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 the recipe that you're already used to and find pretty tasty. Absolutely. But you know, this is one of those films again, <laughs> that it was that era of, they didn't work. They weren't trying to do too much more than, no, they were just trying to move videotapes. Yep. That's what it was all about. That was the name of the game. And like bloody murder most certainly did that. Cause you got a sequel too. I mean, and this was also the time when video stores made it possible for these types of movies to be made and to find an audience. Now, the downside of that is off the top of my head, I couldn't tell you a good one. Like, I sat through a lot of them. I watched Leprechaun 4 in space or whatever the fuck it was. That doesn't mean it was good, I think but dog, it was there. I think Dog Soldiers is the only one. that, that I know it, it played in Britain. I was going to say, yeah, I don't but know I, if that one fully works but i got that at a blockbuster top shelf because that was lionsgate Uh, yeah and it 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 was packaged in a way that just felt like another one that i had to sift through because you're like you had to like during that era most of it was shit and if it hadn't played in theaters you're like all right i'm not gonna waste my time they all were getting on the whole idea thing of putting the laurels on the cover and being like this played this many festivals and then you look at like what festival is that in fucking you know bargersville indiana cool um and Dog Soldiers is the one time where I thought this was another DTV thing, and I picked it up. I said, holy shit, this is awesome. Dog Soldiers played really well at the Missouri Massacre Fest. Yeah, I'm sure it played Official very Official well. selection. <laughs> <laughs> you want to get to Indian Summer? Yes. All right.
1993's Indian Summer. A movie, Martin, that time has forgotten completely. And with good reason. And I think that you can get on Kino Lorber Blu-ray for $3. Yep. It's... This is one of those movies similar to horror films that we've we've found in the past. And it's not a horror film. It's a it's a very, you know, touching um, I guess adult dramedy. Touchstone Pictures. Yeah, full on nice budget. A Good lot, cast. A lot of times if you haven't seen a movie with this cast and Bill, you know, Bill Paxton and like Alan Arkin and this kind of movie at a summer camp or at least heard of it, there's a reason. Like, I think that if this movie had any real quality, that it would have stood the test of time. Um, it is funny, though, going on IMDb, of course, the users, everyone has a relationship with different movies. You know, um, I love Final Exam, for instance. But people are like, this is my favorite movie. I grew up with this movie. Like, I, it, it makes me feel comfortable. So I'm, I'm sure there is a there obviously is a fan base for this movie. But as I said earlier... Um, I don't want to hold it to a higher standard, but I am going to. Um, this is a bigger budget movie, maybe the biggest budget out of this entire series that we've done, um, Meatballs included, that is just fucking lame. It's a lame movie. I think the word you use was bland. Limp. Yeah. Limp is the word I keep coming back to because it's it's part of like... The first two movies that Mike Binder, the writer-director, made uh, were like almost these weird autobiographical like scrapbooks because he made another movie called Crossing the Bridge, which were about a bunch of friends in like 70s Detroit that then Indian Summer kind of acts as like a companion piece too because right. again it's about a bunch of friends from Detroit who go back to the summer camp that they they grew up in in Canada which you know makes sense and a lot of the people you know Bender included who are in this movie like actually attended like it's based on real people like the two brothers that Kevin Pollock and Vincent Spano play they're actually based on two brothers who went on to create their own clothing line that who went to uh, the the summer camp with Bender and then Sam Raimi, of all fucking people, Accident. is in this movie. Yeah, as the maintenance dude, he's basically like our bumbling cropsy, but he never murders anybody. But somehow he's also invited back to like work at the camp for this final week, like while the these grown ass adults are there too. But he went to the real life mm. camp because it's Camp Okawaku. The real, that's the real camp? Yeah, or something. T- t- Tamakwa is the Tamakwa. name. Tamakwa, no, that's the actual name. It oh. was an actual camp. Okay, cool. So, like, and these people all went to, to Camp Tamakwa. I don't think Alan Arkin actually ran it in real life, but, like, these are all based on, like, Crossing the Bridge, which is a movie I have vague memories of and is actually on that $3 Kino Blu-ray uh, with Indian Summer. Um, they feel like Bender like basically laying out a collection of memories. It's almost like his diary or his scrapbook of being like, and this was what it was like to be young in the seventies in, in, in Detroit. But with Indian summer, it's like people looking back on that youth in a very wistful way without us ever really understanding what the fuck they're wistful for. It's 
missing one thing, a dead Kevin Costner. <laughs> Jesus. And who it, would show up in one of Bender's later movies, The Upside of Anger. Right. Um, well, and so everything I read about this movie was, and I think the pitch was, it's big chill at a camp. Straight up. Which is what it's doing. Yeah, it's, it's what big, it's trying to it's do. It's very much doing that. It's also, which I prefer to big chill, is uh, Return of Secaucus 7, uh, the John Sales film, um, which is before Big Chill. Spano's not in that one, is he? No, too early. Um, it's like it's all his like original theater buddies, like Strathair. That's what I thought. Okay. Yeah, it's like before he went on to kind of work with younger actors. Um, but it's it's missing, like I think, a reason to be there, a reason for us to watch. And it's not quite a hangout movie, in that it, it's it's not a quite a hangout movie, and that it actually makes you feel like you're with real people. But it's also not a, narr- a movie with a narrative thrust. We were talking off mic about there's you know, no drama to this at all. Yeah, you know, there's. We were talking about like a hangout movie like Days to Confused, and how while it is just a lot of vignettes of people in a certain time period, we're being nostalgic looking at a time period, or you know, Linklater is. There's still like narrative thrust in there of like this is the night of a kid, you know, uh, Nick Kramer. Uh, coming of age, you have, you know, Randall Pink uh, doing uh, his learning if he wants to be a quarterback anymore, you know, and if he wants to also grow up and be a different person than the kind of path he's been on and go against his coach's wishes, that's there. And it's all baked into also to really interesting, unique characters. The characters here are all like yuppie douchebags um, that their lives are fine, except one person um, has a dead husband. Um, Diane Lane. Diane Lane. That's the thing is even the, the actresses in this movie are fucking awesome. It's like Diane Lane, Elizabeth Perkins from Big. Yep. And then um, who was the one girl who we had a crush on from Father of the Bride? Kimberly Williams. Oh, yeah. Plays like the younger wife of Matt Craven, who's coming to bring this full circle. Matt Craven from the original Meatballs is now in the last movie that we're covering for this series as well. And he's like an abusive, grown douchebag now. And then the last uh, female performer, too, is Julie Warner. I love her. Who's great in, like, a lot of different stuff. Doc Hollywood, Tommy yeah. Boy. Oh, wow, Doc Hollywood. There's a blast from the past. Now, there's a movie that came out right around the same time as this that I actually would be nostalgic for because I watched that movie a ton on VHS growing up. I just rewatched it. It's amazing. It's really fun. The script's great. It's like... It's you can do cheesy, you can do saccharine, you know. Even like I, as you watched, you know, Kindergarten Cop, perfect script, funny, sweet, you know. Che- Ivan Reitman, Ivan Reitman, cheesy in moments. Um, Twins, I watched that last weekend too. It's like you can do that kind of thing. Also, Ivan Reitman, uh, yes, yes. Um, and he was he was also a tonal master. Yeah, he's I mean, great. The way he could switch between like, oh, that's a real bad guy who's gonna hurt you. Like the the bad the villain Crisp, I think is amazing in um in Kindergarten Cop because you switch between like these like funny scenes when it gets dark it's dark but this speaking of tone this film's all over the fucking place Twins does that really well too very to much bring it back to that like when you get to the last twenty minutes of Twins it's actually a good thriller yes absolutely and and he nails it and this film feels kind of rudderless on a, a plot level but also like a tone level as a, as a filmmaker it, it just it's like it's kind of weird. It feels voyeuristic where you're watching these conversations that are awkward. Like the boner conversation you mentioned in the intro of Bill Paxton remembering his first boner. And they camp. do flashback stuff. They, they do. 
And the flashbacks are so, like, completely without weight because none of the kids are given any personality. They're just, like, bags of meat that stand in for, like, younger versions of our older protagonists. Yeah. And you and you kind of talked about earlier, it, like, walks up to having these dramatic moments and then kind of pulls back. Yeah. Before it gets anywhere. It almost seems scared of it. Yeah. Or if it adds any kind of heft to itself that like people might tune out to where like, no, you're, you're, you're sitting there like begging it to at least have some sense of purpose. Cause you, you, you have a good, it's a well shot movie. It obviously has this amazing cast. We haven't even gotten to Kevin Pollack really yet. Who like, this is a great reminder too of again, a, an era specific thing of like, there was a moment where Kevin Pollack was in everything like Kevin Pollack like what two years after this isn't a fucking Scorsese movie. He's in a Scorsese epic. That's the follow up to, to, to Goodfellas. Yep. It's like, he the was also in usual suspects. He's exactly. In that movie. And so like, and he was just a guy who would show up in these things who also was like this incredibly well-respected comedian who was amazing at impersonations. Like his walk in impersonation is like one for the books. But it's also, I think that's part of the world where Bender came from. He was a comedian. Because he was a comedian. And that's what he does now is that he mostly just films stand-up performances. Like I know he filmed like Bill Burr's last one for Netflix or something. I think of Patton Oswalt too. Yeah, he's done a few. And he did like a whole series about the comedy store and stuff. So like, that's clearly like his arena. And I bet you he knew Pollock from those like early days together, but like Pollock even like doesn't, he's not given anything really to do. He's kind of supposed to be like, honestly, the Kevin Pollock character is like, he's the smarmy sort of Jewish guy who like is prickly, but you can still see why people like him. Like he, it, again, it's the, the, the character that he played in basically every movie that he was, you know, signed on for but he's never you know in usual suspects he has one of the most quotable lines what are you going to do when you get to prison i don't know fuck Fuck your your father father in the shower and have have a snack snack. like it's like (laughs) he was great but this movie doesn't have the good sense to even give him the pollock moments he's just kind of he's almost like i think i texted you this is that this movie is almost like if the kids at the burning didn't get brutally murdered and just grew up to be boring ass, like Seinfeld style yuppies. Yes. But not even funny in the way that the Seinfeld characters are like, they're just these bland flavorless yuppies because Pollock is almost like what I imagine the, the Costanza character would have grown up to be like years later. Um, Sam Raimi is even like, he's basically cropsy just without the murder. Like imagine if Indian summer became a weird, we should make this movie actually now that I'm thinking about it. Like if you did like the big chill at a summer camp, but then like a, a slasher broke out in the middle of it. And imagine it was Sam Raimi just going around murdering people because that's the weirdest bit of texture that Bender's trying to layer into this is that, Raimi's doing a bunch of his like three stooges style gags. Like he's just like, there's a, there'll be these weird kind of like tangents to where he's just doing weird physical humor and falling off like a dock or something. And you're like, and like, if you're a, 
a Sam Raimi fan, you're like, oh, he clearly was like, let's do something goofy. Like, let me like have a moment where I like just do the thing that I always insert into my movies, you know? So it's like, you can see again, the attempt at adding any kind of flavor to this whatsoever. It's just, it gets lost in this, this very vanilla pudding. You texted me, you're like, cause you were, I watched before you, you said, oh man, when are we going to find out that, that uncle Lou Alan Arkin is dying? And I didn't respond because I didn't want to ruin it for you. He's like, no, that's what a you know a solid or even generic script would have to give us a reason for being there. It's not. It just all, becomes a he's closing the camp. Oh, we find out he's last like, week. He's like, yeah, it's actually the end. And there's this whole thing about who's gonna save it. We can, we're all rich. We can afford it. No, nah, it's okay. And then someone's like, well, I want to buy it. Well, I want to take it. You can just have it. There's there's no like there's he doesn't even have the the wherewithal to put drama in these scenes. You can kind of see again what he's trying to do is that it's all about how like, again, a better movie would would forefront this is that it's all about like these moments that we experience as children, adolescents, young adults, take your pick, like just take any chapter in one individual's life and how we don't allow it to end. Like it always is continuing on in our mind and is idealized in our mind. And that becomes like the reason that Alan Arkin kind of says like, no, you know what? Uh, Cause he even says, he's like a lot of these camps, you know, they lasted for like five, 10 years. We've been around for like 41. That's a good run. But now it's like just kind of time to end it. And you can see what that's supposed to be is almost like the metaphor for like what these characters are sort of enduring is that this moment never stopped happening in their heads and preserving the camp would allow that to continue. But like, he's totally fine with being like, no moments in your life have a beginning and they have an ending and we can kind of let this one go if we want to. But again, it's never like I had to even dig in my own brain to assign the film, any kind of meeting because he presents that information in such a tossed off fashion. It's just kind of like, Oh no, I'm good with closing. You're like, all right, I guess it's, it's almost there's moments like that, which feel like he's maybe striving as a filmmaker for realism versus telling a story. It's like when you write a script or make a movie, like you need concretes, you need hard edges to be like, give us something of like, someone's going to buy this place out or you ran out of money or like you were really bad with money and like you hid it from the kids for years that like, and you don't, and you're a character just want to ask for help versus though you're just this old moral compass that invites everyone up for a nice weekend, you know, hands some platitudes off and then says, all right, see you later. That's the movie. And then has a, everybody punch each other in a boxing ring. So and- that's, that's the moment that's fucked. Because that's not the moment where the tone goes crazy. It doesn't make any sense it's in the context of the film either. It, right. It's so the whole thing we've, we were just kind of you're making the boy we're making the point about you know it walks up to drama and then kind of walks itself back, except for one element. It's Matt Craven and Kimberly Williams, right? And so she's supposed to be 21. He's in his mid 30s. His character because this is a year after Father of the Bride. It is. Oh, wow. And so she's, you know, his young new fiance, his character, everyone keeps joking about is like, oh, is this, you know, what happened to what's her name? He was the ski instructor. Like he's known for being a womanizer, right? Well, she even enters like because Alan Arkin, Uncle Lou splits them up in the old like fashion style of like girls stay in one cabin, guys in the other. 
and like he kind of has a a bit of like a mini meltdown in front of everybody where he's like, no, I have to stay with with my new fiance. And he's like, no, we're going to do girls in one and guys in the other. But when she enters and is trying, cause she's really sweet. Like at first they, again, they play it off almost like she might be this young bimbo, but she comes off like oh, pretty well put together and smart and funny. Cause she walks up and she's carrying this, this tiny pink bikini. And she's like, Oh, this is a gift from him. I guess it's it's as big as like shoestrings. And Elizabeth Perkins makes a joke that's like, uh, we're all gonna be so jealous because of how good you look in it. But it's like her even acknowledging that like she's nothing but like this kind of trophy next to him. Yeah, and it leads to her being like, hey, I don't want to be a part of this anymore. Like, I don't want to be your trophy. And he grabs her in a very assaulting way um, in front of everybody. And then Vincent Spano and his, his wonderful acting chops is like, hey, don't, uh, don't do that. Don't, hey. hey, don't do that. And then um, Uncle Luch, Uncle Lou, not Uncle Lou, Uncle Lou, Jesus fucking Christ. Uncle Lucci. Un- uh, it's just annoying. Uncle Bortillo. Uh, it's just fucking annoying. Uncle. Everyone's like, Uncle Lou, Uncle Lou. And he shows up. They're like, hey, what's going on here? And then everyone's like, oh, um, he was assaulting his girlfriend. Oh, we should probably send him home. He's like, we'll work it out in the ring, boys. And then. And his most like Arkin-esque tone. Like, it's just like, to the ring. It's so fucking lazy because you have that happen and they're like, good fight. And then. um. Vincent Spano, Julie Warner is his wife in this, who also went to camp. She enters the ring and she decides to beat him up and let out all her aggression out of nowhere. You know, it just, there's all these threads in the script. And I guess well, not out been, of nowhere. It's but, been leading up to it because even when they first get there, they have the whole thing of like when they split up the, the guys and girls in different cabins, she even makes the snide kind of comment. Oh, I bet you like it better that way. And then there's later on the bridge where, yeah. cause he's, He's having a bit of a moment and trying to reignite some kind of old flames. And she, you know, is walking him back from that and being like, oh, we're still in love, right? Like, and it's a whole, like, their marriage is on the rocks. And it has a whole scene where she even says, like, well, you know, we we came up here not to have a good time, but to essentially, like, work things out. No, right. And those scenes are there. So it's there. It's built up. But you're also not wrong in that like it it threads it so lightly through the narrative that by the time that like it never earns this big blow up of like i'm gonna punch you i'm gonna punch you and even like the big blow up is it ends with her being like we need to communicate better and then the scene is over and you're like that's fucking it like, that's what, what we led to, Mike Bender? Like, come on, man. It feels, again, I think we were talking this off mic, but a guy who just hasn't lived much. Right. You know, trying to write a profound script. And he just, there's just nothing to say. It's just like, you should communicate better and, you know, hold on to your the things that you really love doing. Just that really by-the-number shit versus the complexities of being an adult. You know, big chill. Like, Lawrence Kasdan is obviously an amazing screenwriter. And, like... As that movie has been parodied, but since then, but it's a good script. I mean, it's, well, it's a, been it's, parodied for a reason. Yeah, because it fucking works, and and all the stuff with Jeff Goldblum, it's all like solid and like it all is kind of is woven together too as a tapestry, like an ensemble, yeah. a true ensemble. This is just like flailing about in the dark. It's trying, and yeah. again, to its credit, great cast and totally watchable. It just it doesn't even have the good sense to give like, as we kind of made fun of 
you know, Kevin Pollock doesn't even get his Kevin Pollock moments. Like this is like diet Arkin too. Yeah. To where like he gets to be the gruff, you know, older, wise, like lovable grandpa almost. Like it's almost like a dry run for what he would perfect in like Little Miss Sunshine, let's say. But it it doesn't even give you like full, it doesn't let him go full Arkin. It's just kind of like, okay, yeah, I'm, a, I'm just the crass old guy. Okay, cool, but y'all love me. And you're like, sure, I guess. Like, I get it, but... I don't know. You almost wonder if there was like a two hour version of this film that was cut down. It does feel a little it. chopped up. Yeah, it's it's way too choppy. None of the characters are ever really developed all the way. Like Diane Lane, like her big reveal that her husband like died in a car accident feels like it was shoehorned in at the last minute. Also, this feels like the first moment when Diane Lane went from like pixie punk girl in like... Streets of Fire, ladies and gentlemen, the fabulous Stains, uh, the Francis Ford Coppola, like outsider movies, like particularly yeah. Rumblefish. Um, like she was like the most desirable, but young like, thing, young talent that I mean, she lit a lot of fires in me, but it's almost like she aged in like stages to where like you got young Diane Lane and then we blinked. And then she was 37 forever. And like, she's only like 28 or whatever in this movie. But like, she looks like, you know, your buddy's hot aunt. And then she stays the hot aunt until about, I don't know. Was it after? Is um, it Superman? Like the, which Superman? Man 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 of Steel. Steel. Like, and then she enters old Diane Lane phase. Like, it's almost like between Indian Summer and Man of Steel, you just get Diane Lane eternally at 40. And then she ages 30 more years, like in a blink in Man of Steel to play Ma Kent. Well, I think they also age her up significantly in that. Sure. Because she looks a lot, you know, different. Well, uh... The other movie I'm thinking of was the recent one that she was just in with Kevin Costner, Let oh, Him Go, yeah. which is quite good if you've never seen it. It's almost like a Clint Eastwood movie that Eastwood didn't actually have to direct himself. It's just a real sturdy, meat and potatoes kind of genre thriller. Did you watch that one? No, I heard it was good. It's real fucking good. It's like a neo-Western. It, it was a COVID movie because like before, yeah. but it, it did well on streaming during yeah. COVID, I remember. And it's, it's uh, Kevin Costner in full, like... Yellowstone mode, oh, but not evil. Yeah, like he's just doing gruff dad. The, the gruff, yeah, exactly. You know, salt of the earth, Americana dad who's like looking out after his family. Diane Lane's doing, you know, the Ma Kent role like next to him, and then they have to basically go after, you know, this the, this family. It's after, if I'm recalling the narrative right, like the their son dies and his wife continues to live with them because she doesn't really have anywhere to go and they had a kid together and like the grandparents loved the child well then her kind of hillbilly psycho family comes in to take her back and take the kid with them and Costner goes full like unforgiven to go take this kid back from them and it gets like really fucking bloody and violent like it's it's oh, a I'm good in. fucking movie if you haven't seen it fuck yeah well yeah because she I saw this really funny uh, like article or just like a meme or something. It's like 
like 10, less than 10 years before she did Man of Steel. Like she was the romantic lead with Ben Affleck in a movie. And then like seven years later, he's the like romantic hero of this movie still as Batman. And she's the grandma. Right. Like it's just like how women and men are treated differently in Hollywood. Well, and that's what I mean is that like between under the Tuscan sun and man of steel, we blinked and, and somehow Diane Lane went from like hot older woman to grandma. And you're still like, let's pump the brakes. Y'all like Diane Lane is still fucking Diane Lane forever. She's in her fifties. Like she's not even that old. She looks so good. Yeah. She's gorgeous. Unfaithful. Oh man, you know we never Ooh. got to do an Adrian Line episode when uh, uh, Deep Water, Deep Water, yeah. So like, we might need to revisit that one because <laughs> just to watch Unfaithful, frankly, I'm always in. Well, Martin, this has been great. It's been fun. You know, we got to knock out a bunch of summer camp movies. We have a whole mini series now under our belt, our second. And frankly, I can't wait to do another one when we come up with a concept. But folks. You'll have to keep listening to hear what that concept's going to be because we have no fucking idea. (laughs) But it'll be coming up on Secret Handshake. Stay tuned. See you next time. And the takers and the givers and a wreck on the track